Next Chapter Podcasts. The 500. The 500. J.A.M. been walking us down through that 2012 edition, so it ain't nothing to new. Hundreds more to go and in need of a friend. The king of these for Angelo. Talking the 500 until the end. Talking the 500 until the end. With my man J.M. On the 500. Talking the 500 until the end. That song was by R.E.M. from the 1992 record Automatic for the People. It's also number 249 out of 500 on The 500 with Josh Adam Myers. And I'm Josh Adam Myers. You're listening to the only podcast that's going through Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the 500 greatest records from 500 down to one. Also, it's done by a comedian talking to his famous friends. And if you're looking for in-depth info, This might not be the one, because this is a discussion about life, the album, and Gashluki. You want to watch the podcast? Well, you got to subscribe to the Patreon. There's only one way to see the full videos of me and my guests each week. Join the Patreon for $5 a month. You get to watch full videos. And for $25 a month, we're giving away merch. And I'm talking coffee mugs, t-shirts, posters, hoodies to the Fleece Army. I will give you an official ranking in the Fleece Army. And you get to support the people that work on this incredible show. Peter, my editor. Emily, my booker. The the flagships of why this ship is moving are those two people and JT and Morty and me, but go to patreon.com backslash the 500 podcast or find the link on our website. Our guest this week. And I mean, this is awesome is REM bass player and founding member, Mike Mills. The band just released their hit song, Strange Currencies, in collaboration with The Bear, along with a killer music video for them. Keep an eye out for the 25th anniversary re-release of their album, Up, coming out later this year. Mike is currently on tour with The Baseball Project and recently won an Emmy for A Night of Georgia Music. This episode was recorded on July 11th. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to The 500 and listen free on all platforms or anywhere you get your pods. And if you can leave a five-star rating and a review, we would appreciate it. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. I post clips daily. Email the podcast at the500podcast at gmail.com. Follow the Facebook group run by Crazy Evan. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. So here we go with number 249 out of 500 with Automatic for the People by R.E.M. Hey, man. it's I'm Josh, by the way. Uh, I'm the host of the show. That's Jeremiah up there, the guy that just helped you. And uh, I'm really excited about today, man, to be able to sit down and talk to you, not just about this record, but about R.E.M., 
in general. And uh, for this, I got to thank, and I want to give a shout out to Emily, our booker, who is just incredible, man, and sets this up. And I remember when she mentioned that we'd be able to sit down with you to talk about this record. We've had the artists that have worked on the record before do it. Um, but we're, it's like, I was like, ah, I was like, nah, I don't, there's no way. I mean, REM is such a, you guys are just, I, I don't see a lot of interviews. I don't see a lot of like, you don't tour as often. And, and so it's just like, when she kept saying it's going to happen, I was like, there's no way, there's <laughs> no way. So you must be bored right now to talk to me. <laughs> um, no, I'm actually on vacation, but uh, you know, there's a lot of good things happening musically in, uh, in both REM world and Mike Mills world. So uh you know, there's a lot of good things we're talking about, so I figured it. And I've seen your clips; you're, you're pretty good. So thanks, uh, man. Thank yeah. you. I, I, before I even get into anything remotely uh, REM related, how did you do in your fantasy football league this year? Um, well, I'm actually I just uh, I just finished one draft, and I'm in the middle of another one. Uh, last year, football's not really my specialty. Baseball's more my thing. Yeah, um, but football, I, I do okay. I'm usually middle of the pack, maybe a little better. Yeah, I actually won this year, but I have a ringer. I have a friend uh, who won a million dollars on DraftKings, and I play with all my buddies uh, back home. And I'm terrible because I have no time to like pay attention to it. So he's my like silent partner that basically drafts for me and adjusts my lineup, and then I take all the credit. So you're cheating, yeah. I, I mean, well, I would call it cheating. <laughs> I bought the guy dinner. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. All right. And baseball, and that also that also makes sense because baseball is a much more involved, complicated like that is like like you're almost basically a baseball manager when you're playing baseball, fantasy football. Fantasy you kind of are, but but I grew up with baseball. I, I've been a baseball fan since I was you know five years old, so it's it's it makes sense to me. I understand it. Football, football, I get, but but I don't. I haven't been able to apply my knowledge of football to fantasy very well. Are you in? Are you in Scott Fish at all? Are you in the Scott Fish Bowl? No, what is that? <laughs> That's a really cool thing. It's really huge, like thousands of players all across the country, and it, and there's a big charitable component, which is really cool. But it's uh, it's a nationwide thing. They have some live drafts. They do they do weird. That's the draft I'm in the middle of now. Um, it, it's it's a great mix of like celebrities and uh, a lot of professional fantasy folks, and then a lot of other just fans that get in and it, and it's just, it's just so huge is what makes it kind of interesting. Cause it's all, it's all across the country. Are you a Braves fan? Totally. Oh, good. Good. I, 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 too. Yeah. Well, cause it's like, I, there's nothing that upsets me more is when somebody is from a town with a, an incredible baseball organization or football organization, whatever it is. And, and they rep another city. Cause they're like, yeah, I just like the colors when I was a kid or like, <laughs> or like Steve young was a great quarterback. And now I'm a 40. Cause I, I'm a Washington, me and Jeremiah, both in the Washington DC area. So we have, uh, <laughs> we haven't had much to root for the nationals okay. and the capitals, but, but it's like, I'll die. I'll die. I have the Nationals logo tattooed here. I even have the Orioles oh, wow. here. Yeah. So I wow. there's there's no switching teams. You know what no. I mean? Well, we the one of the bands I'm in, the Baseball Project. We we do all original songs about baseball, and uh, it's actually cool. better than that. Better than it sounds because we have Scott uh, Scott McCoy and Steve Wynn, uh, who are great songwriters, and and Steve's wife Linda on the drums, and she's just a hellacious drummer. And so we have a song called Fairweather Fans. It's about our journey through life as you know, like some guys grew up in one city, so they're fans of that city. But if you move to another city, you have to make a choice. Well, I can still be fans of the first team, but I need a team here. So I got to be a fan of the team in the city I'm in. So it's like, how do you reconcile that? So that's what that song's about. Tell me about the baseball project before I even get into this record, because I want you. Uh, it's like it's almost kind of like a super group, if I'm not wrong. 
I, I think so. Uh, Scott McCoy, who uh, has two main bands, the Minus Five and the Young Fresh Fellows, he played with REM since 94, uh, played guitar with us. Uh, and keyboard and whatever else. He's so good at everything. Steve Wynn has a great band, the Dream Syndicate. Uh, they've been around a while and they're just tremendous. Uh, and his wife, Linda, like I said, one of the most hellacious drummers you'll ever see. And sometimes Peter Buck. Uh, Peter Buck's a member of the band. Yeah, uh, He doesn't always tour with us, but he's we're going out in August for the month of August and he's going to be out with us. So it's going to be a really, really, we just put out our fourth record called Grand Salami Time. Because um, <laughs> you know, it's all about baseball terminology and this is the fourth record. Right. So Grand slam four run so um so uh that's that's what's happening with that and it will be out for about three and a half weeks in august and it's gonna be really cool because this, this might be the starting off point because of grand salami time and if i'm not mistaken correct me if i'm wrong but but automatic for the people the title of the record is from a, a pizza chain or soul food soul food where where and that, that's in athens i'm assuming or mm-hmm. How did you guys decide on on that as being the title of this record? You know, some things you just, they just make sense. It just feels right. And, you know, sometimes the weirder it is, the more right it feels. Uh, Dexter uh, Weaver D is, is, Dexter Weaver's his name, right? Calls him Weaver D. And he he's a really cool guy. So when you order from him, uh, he goes automatic, you know, so every order you make automatic. And we just <laughs> thought it was a really cool title. It represents our town. Uh, in a really cool way. And, uh, you know, like weird titles, like all the way back to Life's Rich Pageant. That was from, that's a, something Peter Sellers says in A Shot in the Dark when he's Inspector Clouseau. And we were all watching that movie on the bus. And as soon as he said it, we went, that's it. That's the next record. Yeah. So sometimes they're easy and sometimes they're incredibly difficult, the titles. Well, also, and I have a, I have a question about it. I'm, I'm all like, from from what I'm understanding, it's like the motto, it's from the restaurant, but it also kind of sounds like a political statement or like a slogan. And I think if when people re- think of REM, it's very similar to like the Doors and U2 in that it really seemed like a democracy. Is that true? And, and how did you maintain balance? That is, that is absolutely true. It's, uh, you know, that's one of the hardest things about a band because it's like being married, except you're married to three people at the same time. And over yeah. so time, that can get really tricky. So the way we did it, we have, uh, you know, everybody has an equal vote uh, in, in whatever issue there is, but we also respect each other's uh, intelligence and ideas. So, you know, somebody presents a good argument. Okay. It sounds good. And then if it absolutely comes down to it, we all have one V we have a veto we can use. So if there's something that somebody absolutely just really hates, really, really thinks is the wrong idea, we can throw the veto out there, but that is obviously something you, you have to be very careful with. You don't want to abuse that. How many times have you used the veto? Ah, man. I mean, I maybe twice, you know, oh, wow. it's, 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 it's an absolute last resort. Do you remember, can you, do you feel comfortable telling us any of the vetoes that I don't remember? Like Honestly, now? it's been so long. You don't remember, you don't remember your vetoes? <laughs> no, it's, it's been so long since, uh, since we've needed one. Uh, I couldn't even tell you. No. Okay. All right. Well, like, let's, let's get started with this. Cause this is how I planned on opening it. So before we even get fully into this record, um, it's pretty accurate to say that after several records that that basically catapulted you from the alternative college rock scene into the pop mainstream, you joined a succession of bands that included like The Police and U2, Metallica and Guns N' Roses. And then with this album uh, and sort of hovering over grunge, what was the moment when you first became aware of how popular the band was? 
The, the one that stands out is uh, we took a trip down to Paraguay to uh, to go up into the into the rainforest and uh, ultimately. OK, it's a little it's a little I'll, I'll try to break it down. Sure. There's, a, there's a group of Indians called the Ashe Indians up in upper Paraguay. There were 500,000 acres that were originally bought uh, by a timber company and they were going to deforest the whole thing. Well, they went bankrupt. The World Bank bought it and the World Bank was trying to figure out what to do with it. So when we signed our big deal with Warner Brothers, we made part of it that uh, we and Warner Brothers would buy that land and donate it back to the indigenous people, the Ache Indians. So we went down there to to sign that deal and visit with them. And it took a bit of a trekking through the through the rainforest. And as we were driving out of Asuncion and we were pretty deep in the forest, we were still getting a radio station from somewhere. I don't know where. And <laughs> losing my religion came on. And I said, OK, now we're in the jungles of Paraguay. We're hearing losing my religion. That song is happening. That that has infiltrated about as far as it can infiltrate. So that was kind of a an indication of of how big we were worldwide at that point because because if you know we actually did document on the podcast god i think it was like july of of 2000 and uh, 2019 jt we did that one live in montreal remember with bobby yeah, Lee? just for last and, so. and like i i you know i'm 43 i you know remember how big how big uh Losing my religion was. I was, of course, drawn to shiny, happy people uh, because it was such an. I was a kid, and it was such an upbeat song. And that's not saying I didn't like rock music, but I remember when losing my religion was was out there. I mean, it was everywhere. And so to go from document into green into out of time, like like what was? Were you guys trying to write? different than kind of like because you started in almost like a punk rock kind of scene like like how did the inching start going towards in a more in a sense more pop music you can't the way records work is you can have a plan but it's like mike tyson said everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth <laughs> records, <laughs> records tend to take over uh, they tell you what they want once you get started into there. So with Green, we started swapping instruments a little bit. Peter was a little tired of electric guitar because we'd made our first five records essentially with a similar lineup, you know. And so Peter was like, I, I want to do something different. So he started playing mandolin, as did Bill Berry, uh, you know, acoustic guitar, bazooki, you know, whatever fun things we could find to change the sound a little bit. And then we really took that further. So that was with Green. And then we really took it further without a time. Uh, you know, losing my religion, the lead instruments of mandolin. So that's yeah. that we figured that was a surefire hit. How could it not be a five minute song with no chorus <laughs> and a mandolin as the lead instrument? We're going to slay with that one. Um, and, you know, and that sort of kept on. And then actually when we, ended, we started making automatic, we thought it was going to be a rock record. We thought we were going to get a little bit away from out of time and make this rocker. But as it turned out, all the really good songs we wrote and the ones that Michael felt drawn to, to write, you know, lyrics to turned out to be completely different than we expected. And as it turned out, it's one of our most cohesive records, but you never saw that coming. Hey there, I'm Johnny Christ from Avenge Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians. 
everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. No, it's, you know, I've been doing the research and talking to a buddy that's really familiar with music. And we spent like three hours talking about this record yesterday. And he knows all the facts because he's a huge fan of the band. Um, and, and, you know, you, you're, you're, you, you do out of time. Like, where, where is the band like after out of time mentally? Are you guys, you know, ex- exhausted from from putting out this record because out of time. How long did it take for you guys to work on Out of Time? Well, we were we were pretty much exhausted after the '89 tour. That was uh, that was rough. That was you know nine months of playing in a twelve month period, and that's why we didn't tour on the next two records. Right. Um, after Out of Time, we felt pretty good. I mean, we did a we did a promo tour for Out of Time that was really cool. I mean, we did a lot of fun things. We just didn't tour quote unquote we you know we did mtv unplugged we took a we did a little acoustic instrument uh promo tour of europe where we went to a bunch of radio stations um so we had a good time with that we just didn't want to do the stress of a full-on tour so we were in in a good space we were pretty happy with everything when we went into uh, automatic and you know i mean i think it shows by the fact that we were you know we were at a pretty good space because we were turning out some really good songs Oh my God. Yeah. Um, and you're writing these for, for automatic, for the people like before, if I'm not mistaken, it was like, you're writing this and then like Michael's going to come in later and, and add the lyrics. Um, how easy were these songs? Cause it, t- you were doing the demos at, like during the tour or during the recording still about a time. Well, you, you never stopped writing, or we never stopped writing. Writing was something you did, you know, when you're sitting around, you usually have a guitar in your hands. And if you have a guitar yeah. in your hands, you're usually trying to come up with a song. So it wasn't, I mean, there were certainly periods of enforced writing, but a lot of it just happened all the time. But our general way of working was, you know, me and Bill and Peter would get in the studio and work for a few hours and make some things, put them on demo tape, and then give them to Michael to listen to uh, and at his leisure and, and write words to. But a couple of things, sometimes Michael would drop in the studio and hang out and listen. And me and Honey, in fact, um, he was sitting there doing something. And I was just working on that little bass riff just for fun. And he said, keep playing that. Keep playing it. And I said, oh, God, it's in D flat. It's really hard to play. <laughs> and, um, and I mean, he wrote the song, I think, literally in whatever time it took me to just keep playing it. He wrote those words and I said, OK, it needs one more chord. A flat. We threw one more chord in it and it was done. I mean, that's the that's the cool thing about when he when he would hang out. But on the other hand, sometimes when he would hang out, he would like, OK, that needs to be the bridge and that needs to be the chorus. We're like, get the hell out of here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, go home <laughs> well, and we'll send you a tape. <laughs> well, wait, but you 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 had said something like a moment ago that you were trying to write a guitar rock record. How did it shift into this, which is a you know, this is a dark record. Yeah. I mean, it has hope. It's a dark record with hope. And, exactly. and it's this beautiful thing. But if you're going in there, like, you know, we're going to go back to like our roots in a sense and really like drive this home. How does it turn into into this, which, you know, is dark? 
Well, we, we were writing some songs with electric guitar, but we were still writing a lot of songs with, you know, acoustic guitar and mandolin and, and those other sorts of instruments. Yeah. Uh, we hadn't abandoned that. We were just going to try to bring the electric back in somewhat. But, and we wrote a lot more songs that were on the record, but the really good ones were the ones we picked. Yeah. The ones we liked best were the ones that just happened to be, uh, you know, the, the, what the, whatever they were. And, and Michael, who hadn't intended to write a reflection on mortality and all that, <laughs> somehow he ended up just doing that. That's that's the direction the record took us. And, you know, that's where we ended up. Yeah, because uh, you're opening with with Drive, which, you know, the album opener, I think it was the first single. Uh, it has a simmer that occasionally boils over that is kind of reminiscent of like Pink Floyd, but with those lovely those lovely John Paul Jones string arrangements. Um, we got a Patreon question. Well, not Patreon. I asked, I asked internet. I was like, what do you want me to ask Mike Mills? And somebody said, did John Paul Jones ever, uh, tell you any tour stories from the Led Zeppelin days? Oh, he told me some stories about Bonzo that, that you would not believe, but I can't repeat them. Sorry. I can't, I can't do that to Jonesy. It wouldn't be right. <laughs> he, he, that's what's so funny about like, like when you talk about Led Zeppelin, it's like you you literally talk about Robert Plant, Jimmy Page, and Bonzo. Like you never, he's never like John Paul Jones is one of the most talented, you know, artists. Because if you remember, uh, Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones were were like these these legendary session guys, you know, back in the day. And and the newbies were Robert Plant and and John Bonham. In no, the band. Not, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, Jonesy was a big session guy, very very successful, very talented. He's just amazing. I mean, he's he's um, he's an incredible bass player, great keyboard player, great string arranger. Um, actually, I had to I had to learn the immigrant song for another project I was doing, and and I was trying to do that bass line, and I wrote him. I said, "You asshole! <laughs> That's the hardest damn bass line in the world." Um, anyway, no, he's just supremely talented and a really good guy. So we were really lucky to hook up with him. Was he a fan or like, how did, how did it suddenly end up that, that he's going to come on and, and work out the arrangements with you? I don't, I don't know how familiar he was with the band, to be honest. Uh, Scott Litt, uh, got in touch with him or got in touch with his people. I don't remember how it was working back in 1992 or whatever. Um, but, but he came in and he listened and, and, uh, decided it was something he could work with. Um, one of the highlights of my life, he was listening to, uh, everybody hurts. And there's one part where I kick on the Leslie just for a second and then turn it back off. And he, he looks at me, he goes, nice touch on the rota. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, man, I can just die right now. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I when you know, even when, when they did them crooked vultures with Dave Grohl and, and Josh homie, you're like, you're like, people aren't, aren't really appreciating like how rad it is that that jpj is is playing with them and it's just like he's one of these musicians that you know i don't think gets in the big picture of music gets the respect and 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 honor that he deserves because he's incredible i mean especially well, what good no no that you're right that's just the nature of it though everybody looks to the to the to the singer and the guitar player that's just you know when you when you decide to become a bass player you know that's the deal that's that's how it's going to be and in a way you know you you welcome that i mean if i really wanted all that attention i could have tried to be a guitar player or a front man or something sure. like that. You know, I don't think Jonesy wants any of that. And, you know, the people who understand music really know what he did, but sure. you know, you put, you put the singer and the guitar player on the magazine covers and that's, that's fine. Dude, John Paul was just as sexy 
put him on all the covers. <laughs> He's all right. So let's talk about Drive because uh, it's a few things that stuck out to me. Obviously, Michael sings Bushwhack. Uh, that's a bit of like a political wink at the then current president. Um, but I also read that this was sort of the unofficial rallying theme for the motor voter registration bill. Um, and I don't know if, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if, for people that don't know that the idea was when you went to the DMV to get your license, you would also be registered to vote. And we all know in theory, the more people that are registered to vote, the more voices that are going to be heard. Um, and then once again, automatic for the people, you know, the title, uh, you know, is that true? Were you guys thinking about that when you, when you were writing that? Cause it's, it just seems like very apropos. Yeah. Well, Bushwag was definitely a, a poke at, at, at Bush. Um, when we put out, I can't remember if it was out of time or automatic. I think it was out of time. They were still doing CDs in the long box. Those oh, who, yeah. those who know, <laughs> will know. Because the record companies were afraid people were going to walk out of the store with these tiny little CDs. Well, little did they know that wasn't the real thing they had to fear. So what they did is they put them in these stupid long boxes that took up all of this plastic and just ridiculously stupid stuff. So we said, all right, if you're going to make us do that, we are going to put we want you to put a postcard on the back of the long box. And the postcard was addressed to the White House and it was saying, please pass the motor voter bill. And the White House got over 300,000 of those postcards from our fans urging Clinton to pass the motor voter bill. So uh, he did. They did. And when they when they signed it, we were invited to the White House for the signing. And we went out of the West Lawn and or whatever, the South Lawn and talked to Clinton and Gore and all that. And it was it was a pretty special day. But, you know, that was that was the power of 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 people automatic for the people. You know, you can make a difference. Three hundred thousand postcards did not hurt when Clinton was trying to decide whether to advance this, uh, this bill or not. Who was the driving force? Uh, were, were all of you like, you know, very like politically minded and like wanting to make a change or was there somebody that was kind of like the, the grassroots one in the band that was like, this is, we got, we got a really good platform here. We really should do something. No, we were all in on it. Uh, we, we all agreed, you know, the Venn diagram of our politics was, was pretty solid. Uh, you know, we, we agreed on at least 90% of, of everything that we, had to deal with or thought about dealing with, um, you know, we realized that we could make a difference. I mean, when you're given a chance to make a difference and, 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 uh, and you care enough about people in the world and your country to, to go ahead and do something, you might as well do it. So we just took advantage of that and tried to, uh, you know, we didn't want to be ham handed about it and hit people over the head. But on the other hand, uh, you know, the, the more you pay a po- attention to politics, the more pissed off you get. So yeah. we had, we just felt like we needed to do something about it. Yeah. And you guys were great. Um, and probably, you know, uh, definitely let a lot of people know what was going on in the world. I mean, at a young age, I remember just knowing like, no, REM, they're, they're fucking rad, dude. Um, <laughs> how did you choose drive as your opener for the record? It's, you know, it's a, it's a slower song. It, it's yeah. like, you could have opened with like the sidewinder sleeps tonight, but what made you choose drive, especially after you said you were trying to go in a different direction? What what makes you open that with the sequencing? We we thought it was a really powerful song. It is. It's very we powerful. Thank you. And we didn't want to come out with the pop hit. You know, there's we don't sometimes you don't want to establish a record as being one song. Um, it, 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 you don't really want the identity of a record to just revolve around one song, especially if it's a pop, poppier song that can be a big hit. Um, 
so I think it was more just, a, you know, we, we were challenging our fans. We were challenging the record company. We were challenging the accepted wisdom of, oh, the only way you can do it is you got to have your best pop single as the first single. you got to be the, the best pop song. And we were like, no, we don't think that's the case. We think our fans are discerning enough and intelligent enough to appreciate not being given, you know, the easiest slice of pizza to eat. Let's give them something a little, a little more chewy. And uh, here's a weird analogy. Uh, That that works. That's apt. That's apt. That's for sure apt. (laughs) So, you know, that was great. We were right about the, and the record company was cool enough to go along with it. And it turned out that we were all right. No, I, it's, look, I think it, I think it sets the tone of the record. It's very, very powerful. Like you said, I want to, I want to break more into just the word drive. So we also, we talked about the sense of loss and the umbrella of darkness on a lot of the record, but there's also a sort of, sort of like a triumph in that you were kind of the last mainstream success but by this album, most of these other bands had like broken up from the college radio contemporaries, like the replacements, Husker Du, Camper Von Beethoven, who all had these like various mainstream successes. But when this record came out, it was they were most of them were already done. So speaking of Drive and 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 Rocking On, was there any resentment from the other bands about your drive for success or any like survivor's guilt you felt at breaking through? Um, no, I never felt bad about it. I mean, we worked really hard. Uh, you know, we, we didn't work hard to get rich and famous, but we worked hard because that's what bands do. We wanted to play for people. We wanted to, the, the bigger we got, the more people we could play for. That was really our thing. Um, you know, what, every, everything that comes along with it. No, we weren't sending the checks back. That's for sure. But <laughs> yeah. it's really, you know, it was really about, about, you know, we wanted to go to, to, Turkey and play and South America and play and have fans there that would come out and see us. Um, So, uh, you know, we were pretty happy about how things were going. I think most of our contemporaries, uh, hell, most of them were friends of ours. Um, We hung out with them. So, you know, who knows? I'm sure they're only human. I mean, there may have been a little resentment, not so much against us, but against the system that didn't allow them to to become successful. There were so many bands that were just as good as we were um, that just never, for one reason or another, just didn't make it. It really takes a combination of luck and, and good breaks and and hard work and talent, you know, to get to get ahead in this in the business. Yeah. There were, yeah, there are a couple that resented. Sure. I mean, if you read Trouble Boys, there's a. You know, there's a there's a tiny bit of resentment from Tommy in there, but but you know, I still I I like him. I think he's a great guy and sure. great musician, and and uh, and I understand it. I mean, you know, let's put it this way: when we were working our asses off in the mid '80s, and some band from England with a funny haircut gets a cover of every magazine after having one single come out, yeah, we were, we were resentful. Like this is bullshit. Yeah. Why the hell are these bands on the cover of every magazine and they've done literally nothing except put out one crappy single that's sure. on the radio? Yeah. So, you know, we're all human. We have our resentments, but, you, you know, you got to focus on the big picture. Guess what, everybody? If you're all caught up on the past episodes of the 500 and, and still need something to listen to on those long summer road trips, Next Chapter Podcast has got you covered. They actually just launched a brand new series that's a lot of fun called In the Cards. Written and directed by Kevin Henderson, it's an existential romantic comedy about a born loser who takes on fate and changes his destiny in order to win the heart of his tarot card reader. Connor Ratcliffe from the Dead Eyes podcast stars as Gil, a low-level ad man who loses at everything. When the beautiful niece of a psychic reads his tarot cards and informs him that the universe is against him, he vows to change his fortune. Cheered on by his best friend Lex, 
Gil learns everything about philosophy that he can en route to an epic showdown with supernatural forces. And the cast is great too, featuring Jamie Ann Romero from The Punisher and House of Cards as the tarot card reader, Layla Robbins from The Boys and The Walking Dead as the psychic, and Chuck Woody Iwuju from Guardians of the Galaxy 3, Peacemaker and John Wick Chapter 2 as Gil's philosophy professor. It's funny, it's weird, and it's definitely worth putting on. Listen to In the Cards wherever you get your pods and learn more at ncpodcast.com. Hey, this is Chris Santos, host of Delirious Nomads, the Blacklight Media Podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Delirious Nomads is a podcast about all things heavy metal, as well as breakdowns of your favorite combat sports, and me being a chef and all, we'll be riffing on some food talk every week with very special guests from across the world. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, We've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday. Was it was it Document? Was Document the record that really broke you through and to kind of start seeing, you know, you're reaching much more people? Well, we were we were really lucky that it was such a consistent rise. Every record sold more than the one before it. Document had the first, I guess, hit you know for lack of a better word i think uh the one i love was that document and yeah. uh, so yeah that made a difference and that opened some more doors and uh it started getting you know basically we were just trying to we didn't want to make anything for radio we wanted radio to come to us and that was kind of how that that was our approach to that and uh, you know you radio's not gonna play something that sounds like crap and that's fine you don't want to make a lo-fi record and try to force no. that on the radio but if you make a great song and a great record then radio kind of has to play it and uh so in a way we were looking forward to opening the door for more cool bands and to to maybe get rid of some of that top heavy stuff that was on the radio at the time yeah it's it's funny that that you say that because it, it's like it's very similar to stand-up comedy because we all start together and we're all broke together and we're sharing a sampler at norms like just trying to eat and get by and then eventually everybody starts getting success a little bit here and there. And, and like you said, the, the radio radio, you wanted to come to you. It's like funny's funny rises. If you can, you might not, not have the drive or even have like the, you know, you might be socially awkward, but if you're funny, mm -hmm. the, 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 the clubs and the managers and everything will find you. That's um, right. And it's a beautiful thing. It's like, it's very, very similar to music. But then also, once again, there's, there's resentments and, you know, there's people that I started with uh, that, you know, Gerard Carmichael has gone on to have incredible success. But, you know, and I run into him at Erica Badu the other night and I, I felt good that I had a better seat than him at the concert. So <laughs> it felt good. 
It felt yeah. good. Well, we um, are we are humans and we're all deeply flawed, and that's just something we have to live with. For sure, for sure. All right, let's talk about the Sidewinder Sleeps Tonight. So this was your third single. Uh, when you guys started, a lot of Michael's lyrics were sort of obscured by the way he sang or or the way he was uh, recorded singing. It almost kind of sounded like the equivalent of like taking a picture uh, with their hair in their face. Um, on the last several records, he seemed to have outgrown that. So this song feels like a bit of a throwback. Did, did you feel like this was a throwback to kind of some of the older songs? Not, I, I never thought of it that way. Um, you know, when we read, when we first started, we felt that Michael's voice was just another instrument. You know, yeah. uh, we didn't care what he said or didn't say or if he had any words at all because he sounded great. His voice is so evocative that it doesn't really matter what he's singing because it was just it was melodic and it rich and beautiful and made you feel things. And that's all we were looking for out of out of that. And of course, as you go on, you know, you can't um, you know, some of the early songs he wrote were fairly clear what they were about. Some of them were not. And he got better and better at it as he went along. Then we got to the sidewinder. Um, that is actually the only time I ever asked him what he was singing about. It was because uh, the rest of the time I, I, I got my own mental images out of it. Yeah. I got my own emotional images out of it. So I didn't care. But that one, I really couldn't put my finger on. So I did ask him about that. And he wasn't 100 percent sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's what I love about what I love about you guys is that, you know, you there's sometimes you can, if you can read into certain things like like I mentioned earlier about Bushwhacked, like there and even when we'll get to everybody hurts, there's there's some like little Easter eggs in there. But in the Sidewinder Sleeps Tonight, I mean, just the title is The Lion Sleeps Tonight. So yeah. there's like a homage to that. Um, so it feels like this, this, like, you know, this, this, this great song. And then we were talking about an opener where you chose drive over this, like, this is something that I was like, oh, this could have opened the record to really kind of punch you in the face with like an upbeat song. Um, and this is the third single and it did pretty well, but you guys, you didn't really play this live. Did you? No, not much. Um, we, I, you know, it's funny. I don't remember exactly what we thought and when we didn't go out on tour again until monster and when you go out behind a record you tend to populate the set with with the newer stuff because that's what you're most excited about hopefully yeah uh, you know i mean it's not just about pitching the record it's really about playing your new songs that you're really thrilled to play and at that point you know we had so many to choose from that the sidewinder was like just not up in the in the list of possibilities yeah weird song it might have been a little i'm not sure how it would have come across live uh, so, you know, I, I just don't remember us ever really seriously considering it. Yeah. What, what was the moment? Was it, you said you would do it in a nine month tour. Was that it? That was like, you guys were like, dude, cause I mean, dude, out of time and this record are what's taking you from being this cool college rock band to suddenly like you guys, I mean, you're, you're headlining festivals that you could have been like, you know, an equivalent to today head of coach, which you still probably could, not probably, you would, Coachella, head of Bonnaroo, head of, of any outside lands, any festival with how big Out of Time was. And and with the money too, was it, were you just completely just, just worn out? Or are you just like, we'd rather just work on the music? Well, we were pretty worn out after the 89 tour, but you know, you get over that in a few months. Sure. But on the other hand, you know, we made a whole career out of, out of turning the rules upside down. You know, we, we, we didn't, we didn't open, you know, they kept give, trying to get us to do all these opening slots for big bands and 
we did one, you know, we did seven shows with the police back in 1983. There it is. <laughs> but there were, there were a lot of familial connections there. Ian Copeland, who was our booking agent, was a booking agent for the police and his brother, Stuart, ran the record company and his brother, I mean, his brother Stuart was in the band, his brother Miles ran the record company. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of reasons to do that show, that tour. Actually, one of the main reasons we did it was so we could say we played Shea Stadium. That was, oh, uh, yeah, nice. dude. That was kind of baseball. That's, that's <laughs> rad. Yeah, you, you were probably the driving force of that. You were like, come on, guys, let's, let's, let's oh, no, please. Peter, Peter, I think, was mostly all about it because the Beatles played Shea, and that was yeah. a big thing for us to, oh, to, yeah. to go where they'd gone. But um, as far as not to worry, we just said, you know what, that which it would be, it would become, um, how's the word? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not finding the word. It would become like compulsory. It would become like work, like a job. And we wouldn't have been excited about it. We would have been doing it because we're supposed to and because that's how the game is played. And we, don't, we didn't do that. We rejected all of that. Uh, we knew it would not be good for us as a band. It might have made us more money. It might have sold more records. I don't see how, but it might have, but it might have also broken up the band. So yeah. we knew what was best for us. We weren't being lazy. We weren't being total contrarians. We just knew that if we went out and toured, it probably would not be good for our, our individual health or the health of the band. No, I got it. I got it. Yeah, have your life more in balance and see the problems of all these other huge bands that have broken up because of that. Yeah, we wanted to be we want to be excited when we go out on tour. We want to be looked forward to it, not dreading it. You cannot go out and play months and months on the road when you're already hating it before you've even started. That's For sure. That's For sure. Good. All right. Now, this is this is something I'm very interested. There were, if I'm not mistaken, there are six singles from this record. Sidewinder Sleeps Tonight being the third, like I mentioned. Um, when you when you're talking about six singles, you're diving into the thriller Michael Jackson thriller, Def Leppard hysteria uh, territory. How did that go down? And did the record company, was that for the record company or for the fans? Oh, the record company. I mean, uh, we, they, uh, you know, especially without us touring, they want, they want as much promotion as they can get. And, you know, most singles have a video of some sort, whether we're in them or not. Um, and so, you know, we we kept an eye on it so it doesn't look like gouging and being precious about putting out all these singles but but in a way we you know when we're not touring we have to allow the record company some leeway in terms of promotion so uh and, and plus we love singles i mean peter and i grew up as record collectors i have you know hundreds and hundreds of 45s he has a lot more than i do i think 45s yeah. are cool i think singles are cool so we yeah. were okay with that i mean <laughs> at some point you got to you know not that the songs were any worse, but they were not necessarily the kind of songs that lent themselves to being singles. But if that's what the record company wanted to do, it it was no skin off our nose. Okay, completely. All right, well, let's talk about one of the main singles from the band, uh, Man on the Moon. Now, this is what's so cool about this song. Now, it's a great song, but it's it's become like there, there's something to be said about creating a song that became becomes so famous that it eclipses the famous subject that it's about. Um, and I think that's, I think a valid uh, equivalent would be like Elton John's like Candle in the Wind. But this goes a little further in that the title was later used for the Milos Forman 1999 biopic uh, of the actor who this is very, the very controver controversial, confrontational comedian, Andy Kaufman. And it also prominently features this song. Uh, so before I get into really what the song is, you know, you talked about how you guys were jamming and working out the music. So how 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 before he comes in, Michael, with the idea that he's going to write a song 
about Andy Kaufman. Like, are you, you guys are completely done with uh, the music? Not usually. Uh, no, usually we just, we just record me and Bill and Peter in our rehearsal space. And that's what he usually gets to work with. Okay. Uh, in this case, it was very different because in this case, we, Peter and Bill and I knew we had a great song. We loved it. We went in the studio with it. We finished it. We put on almost all the overdubs. We did virtually everything you hear on that record. We did before Michael wrote the words and we were leaning on him heavy. We said, Michael, this is a great song. It has to go on the record. You have to finish this. And uh, I think, you know, he literally finished it one of the last days we were recording and we mixed it. I think it might've been one of the last songs we mixed. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I mean, I feel for Michael trying to write that many words to that many songs. It's not easy and try to make them all good and all different. Um, but this one, we really leaned on him hard because we, we knew we had something. Knew it. Yeah. So, I mean, so, so there's, you're saying there was a lot of encouraging less than fighting, right? Oh, I wasn't fighting. No, we were just, we were we just sometimes, you know, let's put it this way. There's, there's a phrase called artists love a deadline and, uh, you oh, know, yeah. it, it, it really helps focus the mind. But this one, I know he was trying, he was working, he just wasn't getting anywhere, but we just, we kept the heat on and said, no, you got to, we, <laughs> and we so, really want this song. Yeah. I mean, it's phenomenal. It, so, so he, so what, what was it, what was the collective group feeling when he's like, it's about Andy Kaufman? Um, well, we, we didn't care. I mean, I, I grew to love Andy, but at the time, I mean, you remember when Saturday Night Live uh, had the vote? Uh, do we ever want him back or not? I voted against him. I thought he was a kind of a jerk and he was, but he was. Uh, yeah. But here's the thing about Andy. He wasn't a comedian. He was a performance artist. He didn't care if you laughed or not. He, well, I think he, he liked it when you did, but he just wanted you to feel something. If he made you mad, that's fine. If he made you really want to throw things at him, that was fine too. He just wanted you to feel, and that was his whole thing. And yeah. so that's, once I realized that about him, it made a lot more sense. Yeah, I was actually able to work with uh, Bob Zamuda. Um, yeah. well, by the way, have you met have you met Bob Zamuda? And did you ever get a chance to meet Andy Kaufman? Oh, do, do you not know when we played the Hollywood Bowl? Uh, uh, oh God, brain fart. Uh, and uh, the singer, the uh, lounge singer, Tony Clifton. Tony Clifton, yeah. Tony oh, Clifton yeah. came out and interrupted our show. <laughs> That's awesome. And, is it Zamuda? Is it Zamuda, right? Is it Zamuda I doing? I okay. confirm nor deny that, but uh, <laughs> yeah, Tony, it was, it was set up, but the, crowd, the audience didn't know. So Tony Clifton came out and, all right, let's know Valare. That's a Valare. One, two, three, four, Valare. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, and he shoved Michael away and he threw water on me and I chased him off the stage. Not, none of that was planned. He was just going to come out and riff and that's how it went. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, we were all in on that. You know, they wouldn't have made that movie without that song. Andy's, uh, Andy's relatives came to us and said, you know, that song has rekindled interest in Andy. We want to make a movie. I said, well, do what you got to do. But, um, you know, we'll oh, sure I love we'll that. For it. Yeah. So, so we, there was a, uh, I was doing a, a TV taping for the now defunct CISO, which was NBC's like comedy channel that failed miserably. But I was one of my first tapings was doing this crowd work show for a comedian named Big J Okerson. It was called, the show was called What's Your Fucking Deal? And it was basically, <laughs> they, they have an audience and every comic has to like make comedy out of whatever's in the crowd. And one of the people they had on there was was Tony Clifton. And it's, of course, it's oh, Zamuda. Wow. Well, like you said, can no deny, well, actually by this point, I think you, you know it's Zamuda. Yeah. It was only right. a few years ago. And, and we meet him and he's the nicest guy out of character. 
Right. And then and he, oh, and then he's like, well, I need a backing band. Would you guys, because I can play drums, I can play amongst other instruments, and my buddy plays sax, and my other buddy plays piano. So they're like, do you want to be the backing band? And I'm like, sure. I'm like but for, for Tony Clifton? Oh, my God, of course. And then we get up there, and he starts doing it. And that dude said the most offensive shit I've ever heard. And in the video, thank God it's now, def- like, you can't find this anywhere. He, I mean, he says horrible things. And me and the band are, like, trying to keep the smile on our face. Like, <laughs> oh, my God, he didn't just say that word. Oh, no. And But it's like, like you said, it's legendary. And and that is really cool that that from this song, the, the movie was, because the movie was phenomenal. And and really, it's like, it's all based around this. And, and once again, the song is phenomenal. So, yeah. I mean, that's got to be something that you guys are very proud of. And, and, you know, I think for Michael, even going in that direction, because was there any other discussion of what direction the song would go other than Andy Kaufman? No, I mean, that's Michael's that's Michael's purview. You know, we make the music, yeah. he writes the words. And I mean, there, again, there, there, there's a similar thing. There have been two times that I can remember where one of us asked him to change a lyric, um, you know, whether we thought it was incorrect or offensive or just didn't really make the kind of point I thought we wanted to make, but that's only happened. Like literally, I think I can only think of two times in the entire canon of work um so no whatever michael came up with that's that's his job we don't tell him what to do and he doesn't tell us what to do so um and i loved what he did you know andy kaufman he's a he's kind of the everyman of the song he's the he's he's your he's your protagonist as you follow through what's real in life and what isn't and yeah. uh, and and you know we were fortunate enough to get peter care to make one of the best videos ever made about it yeah that was actually one of the few times I really had fun making a video because normally we hated them. So that was that was it was just a good thing all the way around. I mean, come on, dude. Shiny, happy people. You guys all together in like some cartoon world with the with the girl from B-52s. That wasn't that wasn't fun. No, that's that's for kids. You know, that video was for for the kids. Me. <laughs> for me. It was for me. I was the kid, dude. Yeah. No, I didn't I didn't mind making that video. I didn't love it. It wasn't really fun. You know, sitting there doing the same thing over and over again is not really ever fun. But for the man on the moon, we're out in the middle of the desert and um, you know, Bill got to drive a semi and and we got to hang out and play pool with these people and get, you know, we get film playing pool. Who who yeah. can who can argue with that? No, you're right. You're right. All right, let's let's get into the big one. Let's get into Everybody Hurts. Um, I think it's safe to say that this song transcends the band more than anything you've released. Uh, while you guys have encouragement songs like Stand and Drive, this is the absolute consolation anthem. What I was talking to Morty, who's who's my buddy that helped me like prepare for this. He used to be the writer on the show, and he's he, he really made a really good point, which is what's most amazing about this is that there is no obscurity whatsoever in the lyrics and no hiding of the message. And it's as direct and pure as anything that you've done. And musically, it sounds very similar to one of those uh, arpeggiating 50s or 60s doo-wop or soul or country ballads that teenagers would dance to at prom. Um, and then with uh, with John Paul Jones strings, which are just completely gorgeous. Were, were you guys concerned, especially on an album that reflected so much loss that this was being too frank? No, no, we were never concerned about that. It's uh, if. Um, you know, again, I think that comes with realizing you have influence. Um, uh, you know, we've all at that point, I think we had all either lost someone to suicide or almost lost someone to attempted suicide. And, um, you know, we, we knew the battles that you fight growing up. It's not easy. 
And uh, the fact that Michael chose to address that in really clear and frank terms, we were glad of it. I, I thought it was something to to really be proud of. And, you know, I, we used to get a lot of fan mail and I would answer all of it that I possibly could. And there were a lot of letters from people saying, you know, you saved my life. I mean, I was really going to kill myself until I heard that song. And, you know, maybe true, maybe not. But there it was. Um, and so that's great. I mean, what a wonderful thing to be able to influence people's lives in a positive manner. That was really uh, we were thrilled about that. And that's one of the songs that, you know, people want to use that somewhere. You know, we we agree to almost all of it because that's not our song anymore. That's everybody's song. It's everybody's. Yeah. It belongs to the world. And that's that's the way it should be. I mean, I, I think almost every time that I've listened to it preparing for this record, I, I've gotten choked up. It's just such a beautiful song. And I think the thing that that me and Morty were talking about is, you know, one, just we're so lucky to have music because of something yeah. that beautiful. Uh, and I can't think of anything more rewarding than putting out a piece of art that touches and saves people uh, as much as this. And and like you said, whether it happened or not, it's definitely happened. So, you know, you might not know the exact people, but I think the song is a noble achievement in that way. And it's like the consoling version of Celebration by Cool and the Gang. Um, but I think the thing that saves it uh from feeling like at all patronizing to the listener is michael's vocal delivery because if this song was sung by and i'm not putting them down if I, it was sung by bono or like tom york or chris martin you know very like breathy it's almost like the way he's singing it, it it's this like you know it's it, it's not heavy-handed it's not melodramatic michael's voice is just very uh it's just this delivery that feels disarmingly childlike mm -hmm. you well, know he, he was really become he was by that point he really understood how to be a singer it, it's funny to say that because it, there's so much more to singing than just opening your mouth and singing there's so much more to delivering your lyrics than than just letting them come out. Sometimes I'm not saying he overthought it. He certainly did not. But by that point, he had whether it was an instinctive grasp or whether uh, uh, an acknowledged grasp of, of how to do this. Uh, he did it and he uh, and he pulled it off. I mean, he's one of the you know, I, I, I don't like to tout my own bandmates, but he was one of the best singers in, in rock and roll history, as far as I'm concerned. And he and he really understands how to to give you a song that's not kitschy and not over the top and not something that that, you know, in no way do you want to do anything that takes away from the meaning of those lyrics. And that's yeah. what, how he delivered it, because it's the lyrics and the power of his voice without you thinking about his voice. It's just you just hear the words. Yeah, because he's a great singer. Like you said, he's he's one of the best rock singers out there. And for him to it's like you because I know he was dealing with with stuff during this. I, like you said, everybody's dealt with it. But uh, if I'm not mistaken, he lost his grandma during the recording of this. Is, am I wrong? I think that sometime right around then. Yes. Yeah. So it, it just it just it feels like, you know, you know what it feels like? It feels like John Lennon's Imagine. It's not perfect. You don't want it overproduced. You want the flaws and you want the cracks. And, and because of that, because if Imagine was, you know, the, you know, this this overproduced song, it would just be like, oh, this is cheesy. And what's great about this is that this isn't at all. And what bums me out is that you don't tour right away for this. So what was it like hearing this song sung by an entire audience at, <laughs> at a stadium the first time? Um, it's very powerful. Uh, it's it's. It's gratifying. I mean, it's it's nice to touch people. You know, you want your music to touch people. And 
you know, when you realize that you've touched, you know, 50 or 60,000 people at one time, it's, it's kind of mind blowing. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's really tough to find a compartment for that particular item in your mind, but it's great. I mean, it feels wonderful and, and making people happy uh, is one of the best feelings in the world. And if you can make yeah. that many people that happy at one time, you're probably doing something right. What was the, what was the, what, what was the one that really got to you? Do you have a certain performance of this that you were just like, Holy shit, man, this is, this is, well, you know, it's everything. funny. I remember it, but I don't know where it was. See, I'm at, I'm at the piano on that song. So I'm not really, I can't see the crowd all that well, but I do remember one night, I think it was in Germany somewhere, but I honestly don't remember anything else about it, but there was, it was very powerful and very poignant night. And Michael was really on fire and it was, uh, it was really special. That's great, man. Please, please tour again. So I can, I'm going <laughs> no, to see, I'm going to see, I'm going to see everybody right now. It's like, that's what sucks about like when I had, when I didn't have money, everybody was touring. And now that I have money, <laughs> no, every, you know, come on, man. Neil Diamond, please yeah. just tour Neil Diamond. My God, he can't. But, you know, yeah. we can dream. All right. Um, you know the feeling, believe me. Yeah, dude. Hey, this is Scott from Fly on the Call. Each week I speak to a different musician, whether they're in an established band like Silverstein or The Wonder Years, or band on the rise like Spanish Love Songs, Origami Angel, or Meet Me at the Altar. We discuss music and lyrics, the successes and challenges of being in a band, and more, as we get to the core of each artist. The show features musicians of diverse genres and backgrounds, so there's always a chance I'll be talking to your new favorite band. Listen and subscribe at soundtalentmedia.com. Uh, thank you for thank you for being a part of that song, man. That's that really is a beautiful song, and it it really is something that you know not just from this record, but from from the music that you guys have made. It's like it really does affect, and there's nothing more beautiful than than hearing a song and and you know because it could for me it could be the lyrics, it could be the melody, it could just be a chord change that just gets that touches me and makes me cry. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. this song is like without a doubt. This is up there with uh you know in my cry songs for with Vincent by Don McLean. Oh yeah. That 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 will always get me. And and then Stardust by Nat King Cole, which is my favorite song ever. I just mm -hmm. just it's just the best. And then mm -hmm. and then tub thumping by Chumbawamba for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't I, know. I can't say I've ever cried to that one, but I have to come around to it a little bit. Yeah. So let's talk about Night Swimming because this song kind of features you on piano uh, playing something you wrote and Michael singing backed by John Paul Jones uh, string arrangements. And then in total rock and roll fashion, a beautiful oboe solo by Deborah Workman. Mm -hmm. How did that come about? That was one of those where I um, I was playing that piano riff. And the thing about it is it's really just the same thing piano wise over and over again. But it's a really great piano thing. So why not repeat it? But I was playing that. That was one of those things where Michael wandered in while I was playing. And he said, keep playing that. Keep playing it. Keep playing it. Yeah. And I think he wrote a lot of it just while we were standing there, just sitting there together. Um, and that was another one of those things where I, I said, oh, you know, OK, it's the same thing over and over again. I need an intro. So I wrote the intro and the intro happens three times and that's the song. Yeah. Um, a lot of those string things uh, were actually mine originally that John took and fleshed out. Uh, and then the last two verses, uh, that's, a, that's all Jonesy there, uh, especially that, that oboe solo, which he wrote. Uh, so yeah, it was a really cool collaboration between the three of us uh, as much as anything else. And, you know, it's in my, uh, I wrote a concerto, a friend of mine commissioned me to write a concerto, but he said, you have to include night swimming. So night swimming is in the concerto that I've oh, been wow. 
Yeah, so it's uh, it will live for quite a while, I think. Well, what I love about this song is it seems to be, if I'm not mistaken, about about going skinny dipping at night, which seems that's something people do in their lives when they're a certain age and they may never do it again. And and I know we're getting towards the end of this, but and if you feel comfortable, uh, could you share like a beautiful nostalgic moment uh, that you treasure from the early years of the band? Well, you're right about the 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 uh, skinny dipping. That was there was a place called Ball Pump outside of Ax- uh, Athens where we all went after the clubs would close, and uh, we just all go out there and go swimming at night. Um, I mean, man, there's just there's so many great moments. You know, the 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 moment that Peter and I are walking down Broad Street in Athens, and we realized that we might actually be able to make a living at this. That was a pretty special moment. What was it? What was it that made you think you just did a show, or just I can't remember. I think maybe we. It could have been as early as just us selling out Tyrone's for 350 people. I don't know. It, it was it was very early on, but or maybe maybe we'd signed with IRS or something. I'm not sure exactly, but it was early enough for us to be surprised that like, holy crap, we might actually be able to, you know, do this for a living, which we never expected to do. So that was a pretty big deal. I tell you, you know, meeting Nelson Mandela, that was a yeah. pretty sweet moment. Um, that that one has always been at the forefront of my mind. I just, it's, it's such an interesting career, you know, especially this art, just getting into something like this. I love how you said, he's like, we, even with you guys working together and connecting and making these songs, starting off and, and playing with these other bands that, you know, you respect and, and, and you're, you're finding to see that it's starting to happen. You know, it's, it should never get lost. Even, even the bigger you get, it's just, just, you know, I had moments where, I was complaining to a younger comic. I was like, oh, I got, I got a, it's like two 30 AM. I'm at the comedy cellar and I'm like, yeah, I got a 5 AM flight to LA. Cause I'm doing the jam or I'm doing this. I'm just like, I'm so tired. And the guy looked at me, he's like, dude, that's so cool. And I'm like, I'm like <laughs> yeah, I guess it is. And he goes, no, it, kind of that, is, it? It, it is. And he goes, man, if you would have told, if you was somebody would have told you when you first started that you were gonna, you know, be it for you, be at a stadium and they're singing one of your songs, you yep. know, you would have been like, Oh my God, really? Like, and then when you, you, you can never lose that, that like that joy that you still have for doing it because we're very, very lucky, whether it's making music or performing comedy or acting or, or painting and being successful at that, that it, you know, it, it should never go away and get lost. And it's, you know. you're, you're exactly right. That's, that's one of the most important things that, that, that will keep your mental health and, and your, and your ability to be a good human being in the right place is just remember what, what you didn't have before and, and who doesn't have this that you have and how lucky you are to have gotten to this point. Uh, and it's something we are all pretty good about reminding ourse- ourselves. And if we don't, our friends will. I used to come home from tour uh, and hanging out with my buddies. I'd ask one of them to get me a beer. And they're like, get your own fucking beer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I'm home again. That's really yeah, good. I love <laughs> it. Stay grounded. I was going to throw out, there's a couple of notes we have about Kurt Cobain and Nirvana. So I was just curious about the relationship between the bands. Um, if there's anything you could say about that, if there was one. Well, we were lucky enough to to know Kurt and hang out with him and, and Dave and Chris. Uh, you know, I saw him play several times. They played Athens at the 40 Watt Club. Um, you know, they Kurt looked up to us because he knew how hard it was to deal with being a front man. Um, you know, Michael is actually naturally shy. So it was really, he had to learn how to do it. I think Kurt probably also naturally shy and, and he had to try to figure out how do you, how do you handle this? And Michael was really good for him 
uh, helping him through a lot of that. I mean, at some point he obviously just couldn't be reached, but, um, but, but Michael was, you know, very supportive of him. And, and, uh, you know, like, like we do with a lot of bands, we gave him a template. We gave him a way to, to navigate through all the bullshit that you're going to encounter when you have to deal with record companies and, and make videos and, and deal with all this bullshit. Here's, here's how you can do it and, and try to maintain your sanity. So, uh, we were really happy that we were able to kind of, you know, shine a torch on some of that for people. Yeah. Um, all right. I know you kind of already mentioned it, but it's like the 30th anniversary uh, version of this album is the first to be released in Dolby uh, Dolby Atmos. It's a new Atmos, three, yeah. Atmos yeah. a new 3D surround sound experience originally used in movie theaters that allows listeners to hear and differentiate the music anywhere, as opposed to the post play, past placement placement on the linear spectrum of right and left on speakers or earphones. And I feel like you already said it, but being that it's the anniversary and seeing as Bill has returned to music and you and Peter have continued to play together uh, and some of the other uh, defunct contemporary bands, as we've mentioned, have gotten back together. Like we've had a Pink Floyd reunion once and then Guns N' Roses did it. Is is there any way we're ever going to see the four of you guys play together again? I can't see it. I can't think of anything that would that would happen to make us do that uh you know part of it is you want to leave your legacy the way it was um there's nothing wrong with reuniting if that's what you want to do i wish kind of wish the beatles had on the other hand it's really great that that you know what was it uh it was a fair and young live fast die young and leave a beautiful memory um there's something to that you know and a lot of people say oh i really want rem to reunite i want to see you again it's like no you want to see the rem you remember from 1994 you know (laughs) you want to see the rem that you loved in 1987 you may not really want to see a bunch of 65 year old guys up there on stage (laughs) you think you do but you may not so you know there's a lot of things to consider and you don't want to cheapen your legacy by by doing a money grab now there's anything wrong with a money grab i love the money but um you know and, and there's, there's just not necessarily any reason to do it i completely i understand exactly what you're saying and and you guys really did put out a career that that gives us enough art to really appreciate it and enjoy it and you know you're working on other projects michael everybody's working on their own thing and you know yep. maybe maybe something will happen where you guys write a song or you jam together in some situation but that's but do that if you guys want to don't do it for us do it if you guys exactly, want. I, exactly. I mean yeah if something happens it'll be something organic that just happens to come down the pipe we just don't know yeah um all right i'm, I'm i usually ask a certain uh, grouping of questions to the comedians or the actors that i have on to do this i'm gonna see if i can clean these up a little bit um yeah why not fuck i'll just ask the regular questions all yeah. right what, what what song on this record are you most proud of on automatic yeah find the river why um well, just on a purely selfishly personal level, I wrote it. Uh, I play almost all the instruments um, except for the drums. Um, I feel like it's just, you know, that I could create something that Michael could put something so beautiful down on. Uh, the backing vocals of me and Bill uh, are just incredible. Um, I just think that that's such a great, uh, you know, record capper. Um, that's just, I mean, just on a personal level. Uh, sure. if, if I was talking about a favorite REM song, I might go with Man on the Moon. But just on a personal level, I'd say Find the River. Okay. What is there a song on this record that you're kind of like, yeah, like maybe we shouldn't have put this on here or like, because I always ask the other people, I was like, what do you skip over? You know, honestly, one of the reasons I keep saying this is 
if not our best record, certainly one of them is because it's solid from top to bottom. It really is. There are no dogs on this record. Uh, You know, sometimes there are songs that one of the guys in the band doesn't like and the other guys do. But on this record, no, everything's everything's a winner. And and I have there are no soft spots in it. I completely it's 12 perfect songs, uh, just just placed perfectly, too. It's great sequencing. All right. I'm going to ask you this. I ask everybody. Jeremiah's already laughing. Can you fuck to this record? Uh, I would I, think so. I mean, you. I, I think know. it'd be really weird if I did it, but, um, <laughs> Dude, but if uh, you're with them, hold on for a second. Let me set the mood. If you believe <laughs> they put a man, yeah, that would be a special kind of arrogant right there. But uh, <laughs> would be. Uh, no, but yes, I don't see why. I'm sure people have. I'd be Probably. surprised if they haven't. No, I, I think because drive is is a very it's dark, but it's sexy. You know what I mean? Right. And and I think there is it's a good way to open it. I don't know if everybody hurts is like the song you want playing while you're doing that. But I mean, I oh, feel it depends like on what you're up to, man. I for don't sure. Know. <laughs> for sure. Um, can I the, can you work out to this record? Mm, probably less so. I mean, for me, when I work out, uh, I play a shuffle of my library. So, you know, my stuff goes from Edith Piaf to, to Mozart, to, uh, big star to Perubu, you know, some of which you really cannot work out to, but I'm on the elliptical. It doesn't matter to me. So somebody actually asked this and I'm glad you just said big star. How, how much big star, uh, influenced this record? Somebody said the third big star album, was was there any influence from Big Star? Because I mean, obviously, you're, they're they're a great band, and yeah. I know you love them, but no, nothing direct. Uh, you know, Big Star was Big Star influenced us more in the sense of how you two influenced us. They make us want to be better. They make yeah. us want to write better songs and be better musicians and work harder and be great in every way. So that's where you find the U2 and the Big Star influence in REM. It's much sure. more in that direction. And so I, in fact, Big Star, uh, I'm, I'm going with Jody and, and the boys over to Spain and uh, we got a four show tour in November in Spain. So we, that'll be We cool. had Jody on. We had Jody on when we did. What record did we do, Jeremiah? I think we did because we did we did third we did we've done rate what is radio city and then uh big star one is that the what yep. kind of big star one, yeah, one so, record, yep. and i'm pretty sure we did big star one with uh with jody which was great that's what uh, we're touring with in spain so it's oh good. that rules dude yeah. dude that yeah. rules yeah, city. Um, what was it radio yeah. city dude he was mm-hmm. oh awesome. that's that's great too i you know i love radio city I, I i'm more of a number one record guy but but there's nothing wrong with radio city for sure i think it's this is what i love about this podcast and i love about music is you know we had fred armison on last week and I, we were doing oh, craft love work fred. he's a great dude and i was doing craft work and i was like dude i feel like such a poser now that i like craft work so late in my life and he's like nah that's what's great about music man it's there for you to discover and whether you find it early or later it just if it hits you it hits you and and the same thing with big star it was a band that i I remember seeing multiple records on the list and being like, who is Big Star? Why do they have three albums on here? And now yeah. I'm like, Big Star fucking rules. You know about Big Star? Yeah. Yep. Agreed. No, I love it. And now to be able to hear them and hear your music and hear some of the other bands, you really see how deep their influence was in music. And they should have gotten way more like risk. And they do. They do get the respect, but it's like more people should know about them. For that's, sure. that's what we're doing. We've been, I've been playing with Jody for years trying to get the word out. So, yeah. Good. All right. All right. Last question. Uh, what would be your elevator pitch to get someone to listen to this record? Oh, God. Uh, uh. <laughs> you don't oh, pitch a, a lot of tv shows no, do you I, I, I just say you're a fool if you don't 
There it is. I, you really are. I, I think, listen, out of a career that has, you know, it's just spanned, you know, so many different sounds. It's like, this is a band that really is, that knows what they want to do. It's very confident in, in the music that they're putting out. And what's great is it sets up a few of the other records too, that you have coming out. And it, it's just, it was a perfect follow-up to out of time. And, and, and man, I like, I can't thank you enough for coming on and, and just talking with us for an hour about this. It's really ruled. No, we, I enjoyed it very much. I appreciate you having me. My pleasure. Um, do you have anything you want to promote? I know you mentioned some shows, but just anything you just want to tell everybody and to check FX out. FX is the bear. I know. We oh, yeah. I forgot to bring that up. I'm sorry. What, Jer, uh, what, remind us what that is. I see. The uh, bear. Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah. No, I've well, the bear is a great show. Uh, you know, I, I think everybody knows the, the story of the guy is a chef at French Laundry and he bails on it to come. His, his, his brother dies. He goes take over their sandwich shop and he's, I'm uh, going to eventually try to do better things with it. It's it's a really great show. It's incredibly well done. They've got great music choices, not just REM, but but everything else that they put on there. It's very, very well done and very powerful. It's funny, but it's also cringy and moving and, and empathetic. And uh, I, I'm really, really honored to be associated with it. It's a great show. I, there's a there's a clothing store that I like in the Lower East Side and they, the white t-shirts that he wears are like the most popular t-shirts there. There's these Mersby Schwannen. They're like $90 a shirt <laughs> and everybody wants to dress like that guy. So yeah, yeah he's great. Uh, no, I dude, I can't thank you enough uh, for coming on, Mike. Thank you for taking time out to talk with us today, dude. My pleasure. Y'all take care. Thank you, buddy. Follow him at M underscore Millsy. That's M-I-L-L-S-E-Y on Twitter. And keep an eye out for the 25th anniversary re-release of R.E.M.'s album Up coming out later this year. Our new music this week is the 2023 single Vampire Empire by Big Thief. Next week is Ornette Coleman as we go deep into the 1959 monumental record The Jazz of Shape to Come. And if you haven't heard this record yet, you got homework to do. Listen to the record. Stay fleecy.
last time It's like trying to start a fire with matches in the snow Where you can't seem to hold me, can't seem to let me go So I can't find surrender and I can't keep control You turn me inside out and then you want the outside in You spin me all around and you ask me not to spin You can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or nothing more than a One Hit Blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. Next Chapter Podcasts.